0: a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering evangelical. What could go wrong? This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast with Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and Jason Elam. Welcome in, everybody. This is Jason Elam back for another episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. I'm here with my awesome co-hosts. Introduce yourselves, guys.
1: Hi, I'm Lola, your favorite Birmingham hooligan who loves the word fuck, and is a mediocre crocheter. I'm really happy to be here. I'm really honored that you took time out to listen to our podcast. And I hope that you did something nice for yourself today. And I hope you were gentle with yourself today.
2: And it's me, Kyle, your friendly neighborhood encourager. I just picked up that phrase the other day on a short little uh, inspirational video I did, and I think I'm going to keep it for a while. So it's me, Kyle, your friendly neighborhood encourager.
0: I like that, Kyle. That that suits you very well. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so a lot has happened since our most recent episode that released. And, um, gee, let's see. All right, so Donald Trump's house got raided by the FBI. Liz Cheney lost her congressional seat by losing the Republican primary in Wyoming. Um, the cops who killed Breonna Taylor... Were brought up on federal charges, one of them for lying on the no knock warrant that led to her death.
1: Yay. Say her name, say her name. Yes. That's right. right. Okay, what about Donald Trump's house? I'm sorry, I was not in the loop for that. So explain that.
0: Well, you know, being a resident former MAGA girl, you should know these things. (laughs) Um, Yeah, exactly. Anymore. All right. So last week, uh, the FBI served a search warrant and had a subpoena to take a lot of documents from Mar-a-Lago, which is Donald Trump's uh, residence. It, It was a hotel, but now it's listed as a residence because he lives there year round. I think you can still rent space at it for events and things like that. But anyway, the FBI showed up, found a lot of documents, presidential documents, classified documents, some top secret that were not supposed to be there, um, that were supposed to have been turned over to the National Archives when he left the White House. And of course, you know, MAGA folks are very upset talking about, you know, this crosses all the lines and it's political persecution and the Biden administration wanting to hurt uh, Biden's potential political opponent in 2024 by bringing charges, possibly an indictment against Trump. And so, yeah, that's that's what happened last week in Mar-a-Lago.
1: Is it weird for you guys that that God or the universe or the cosmos actually loves Donald Trump? I do have to remind myself that a lot. Yeah. I have to remind myself of that all the time and that we're supposed to love um, child molesters, which is very difficult for me specifically.
0: Right, because really you just want to hit them. Yeah.
1: Really, I would just like to nail their dicks to like a rusty board and give them a dull spoon and say good luck and then set the place on fire. But I digress. Uh, (laughs) I
2: digress. (laughs) You know, I'm kind of wondering about this love thing. Now, I do, I do believe, in the, as from, the, from the perspective and the point of view of all of humanity being one, I do believe that, I, I do believe we all came from this source of all things. We're part of that source. We're little fractals of that source. Or well, I guess another way to, to describe it, if, a, if the source was a big rock and it exploded into numerous, unnumberable amount of, little pebbles, we're all those little pebbles. And if that source would call back all these little pebbles, it would go right back to being that one source thing. So that's kind of how I see all of humanity in in a nutshell. Now, uh, the love thing, I I definitely, for a long time, believe, yes, love everyone like I love myself and love everyone unconditionally and things of that nature. But I, I started wondering if perhaps... That's not possible to really sincerely give that kind of love to everybody, strangers, people we vehemently disagree with people who are hurting other people, things of that nature. is it really possible? well, maybe it is possible, but how doable is it to really give that kind of love to people in that in those categories? So maybe what the task is is for us to simply not cause them any harm. Just, okay.
1: You know do what? no harm, take no shit kind of yeah, mindset. The, yeah,
2: kind of. You know what? I, I don't really like you. This little fractal that you've turned into, this this ideology that you hold, this this way you live your life, the, the delusion you're under, whatever it is. I, I don't like any of that. And I'm not really going to be part of it. I'm not going to associate myself with you. I'm not going to wrap my arms around you and tell you that you're great and I love you with lip service. But if I see you, I'm not going to run you over with my car. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to do that.
1: But do we have an obligation to, I guess, love and encourage, especially like political figureheads? I mean, wait, I don't know where does that the obligation is. come in? Do we have that obligation at all? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think
2: so. I mean, again, if we came from our biblical backgrounds, then yeah, pray for those who have rule over you and all that jazz and da-da-da-da. But, I, you know, again, if I, if I, see, I want to be authentic to love. I want to I love people authentically. Like, I want to be authentic to what I believe the ideal of love is. And I know for myself, That probably the best way for me to do that with people that I don't know, with people that are strangers, with people that maybe I just vehemently disagree with them and and they do terrible, horrible things. Maybe the best thing I can do in, in regard to loving them is just not cause them any harm, not dead them, you know, not, not beat them down, you know, viciously just because they come into my company or something like that. And then maybe I can authentically love those who I do know, those that are family, those that are friends, those that are in my life, those that I choose to be in my life and things of that nature. Maybe I can authentically love them and just not do any harm to the people I really don't know or perhaps really don't like things of that nature. I don't know. It's kind of what I've been thinking about.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that, Kyle, because I've almost got the opposite perspective. Mm -hmm. I think it's a lot easier for me to love people that that I don't know. It's easier for me to love people who've never hurt me.
1: That's why you loved me right off the bat, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) The people who have hurt me and, and deeply affected me, it might be best for me to just put some space between myself and them. And it okay. may take years, but eventually I will heal and not have that festering wound of hatred towards them over time. But I'll tell you, I had the weirdest thing happen just last week at work. And I won't mention the name of the organization that I work for in this episode because I don't speak for that organization. I'm just sharing my experience. I was sitting and in, in interviewing this new person who had come into our program. I worked for a nonprofit and we were getting to know each other. It's my job to help him find a job. He's coming out of incarceration. He's having a hard time getting his life going again. And um, we were talking, and I just love this kid. He just has the best attitude. He's so positive, uh, so enthusiastic about the future. And... Unfortunately, one of the things that I have to do uh, in my line of work is to ask about criminal history or legal history because I don't want to put them in front of an employer that cannot hire them based on their conviction record. I don't want to set them up for failure. And so when we got to that part of our conversation, this kid tells me that he's, he's uh, charged with murder.
1: I'm sorry. How old is this person?
0: He's 19 years old.
1: Oh my God.
0: And he's charged with murder and he tells the story and it's just, you know, one of those things. somebody's in the wrong place at the wrong time and push came to shove and shove came to shooting. And my heart broke for this kid. I want to see him thrive. I want to see him excel. But I'm sure that he is the villain in somebody's story. There's somebody out there that hates him with a passion for what he took from them. And with, you know, possibly with some good reasons. I don't know all the details. But because I know him, even though I know something that he did that he admits to doing that, you know, I certainly wouldn't have agreed with. I'm really very nonviolent in my own belief system. But I love this guy. But he didn't do anything to me. And so that's, in my mind, what made the difference, why it's so easy to love him. Was because he had not hurt me or anyone that I cared about, and so I mean, I guess sometimes it's uh easier to love people, at least in my experience, that are not the ones who wounded us. Lola, what do you think?
1: I mean that that makes sense, I guess I have an easier time forgiving people that personally have like fucked with me, so I think, honestly, it comes a little bit easier for me to condemn a stranger versus somebody that I know. Because psychologically, I can kind of track how they came to this decision to either hurt me or somebody else. Like, if I know them personally, I just have an easier time forgiving them because I can track the motive and see where, in their mind, maybe they weren't the villain in the story. Not to say that they actually weren't, but I don't know. I, I that's that's where I think we part ways a little bit. Uh, I think it's it's a little bit easier for me when I know who it is.
0: Awesome. Well, you know, we've got a variety of perspectives on the show, and that's what we like about it. That's the point. So <laughs> that's the whole point. Absolutely. And so you know what that means, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. It's now
1: time for Auntie Lola's Bible story. Yay! Yay! <laughs> You know, this kind of tracks with what we were talking about anyway. So the story is about a Levite, a concubine, and an old man. Once upon a time, there was a Levite that was married to, obviously, a concubine is one of several wives or partners. Um, So was married to this one concubine. She ended up cheating on him and went to go stay with her father for a little bit. And whenever uh, he found out that she had left, he was like, you know what, it's okay. Like, I need to go to her. I need to fix this. I want to take her back in. So he goes there, he stays with them for a little bit. And then he's like, all right, time to head out. We got to go back home. And when it comes time to go, the Levite and his, his wife, I hate calling her a concubine. I just, I, I'm not going to do it anymore. Okay. His wife. They, they end up going to some village that they're not super familiar with. Um, but they think it's safe for the most part. Um, they think these are people that are, um, of the same culture. So they end up running into this older gentleman and he's like, Hey, you guys are foreigners. It's pretty obvious to me. Why don't you come stay with me, um, overnight? Cause it's getting late. So they go stay with this old man. And that night when they're all just sitting there hanging out, eating, there's a group of men in that neighborhood that are described as perverted and they are asking uh, for the man, the Levite, to come out there so they can know him biblically. So they want to fuck him. And he's like, no, I don't want that. So let me just, here, take my wife, just take her and do what you want with her. He goes to sleep uh, after he gives his wife to these strangers that are very aggressive, it seems. And uh, he goes to sleep and all is well with him. But outside, she's being raped to death in every way possible. She's being raped until she dies in the threshold of the door. And so the next morning, the Levite, he wakes up and he's like, all right, I'm ready to go. And uh, he goes to the door, he sees her lying there and he's like, "Get up. what are you doing?" She doesn't answer. so he's like, "Oh, she died. How sad." And then he puts her on a horse and takes her back home and then decides, you know what this is this is politically wrong. This is morally wrong. Th- like why did they kill her? Why did they do this? So now I must punish the nation that has done this. So he ends up cutting his wife into 12 pieces and mailing 12 pieces out to 12 different like tribes or nations as a as a political statement of sorts. And it's funny that he found righteousness in this, but could not find the same righteousness when his wife was being raped to death. What the fuck?
0: Wow. Yeah. That is a screwed up Bible story. I tell uh-huh. you.
1: It's a road trip that went so bad.
0: So bad. Thank God there's not a veggie tale of that one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) SOS. Send help. Uh, Um, Wow. Yeah, so that's really just a testament to... Man, I fucking hate how they keep... I understand concubine is not inherently like a bad term, a negative term. Like, this is just one of many wives. I get that. I don't like it because it... Kind of it sounds like a, well, it sounds like just what it is, a, a domestic slave, you know
0: right. yeah,
1: but I just hate using it because this woman mattered. She was a person and she was more than a wife and she mattered and she was raped to death. I and mean, can you imagine like uh, as a as a rape survivor, it's very jolting for me to hear the story because I actually didn't know the full context of it. I just knew a woman had been dismembered for a political statement and was sent off to the 12 different tribes, which I I just, I didn't understand the context when I was younger. It didn't matter to me. But now that I know the violence behind it and the fact that her husband slept soundly, this is a person that vowed to, I guess, take care of you and hopefully love you and protect you. And you were thrown out to a bunch of foreign people that raped you for hours, I'm sure. I mean, I don't know how long that night was, but I'm sure it felt like forever to her.
0: It's excruciating just to hear the story.
1: It's gut-wrenching. I can
0: imagine living that reality. That would be awful. Doesn't it drive you guys crazy how women are basically referred to as property to win favor for men in so many stories in the Bible?
1: Oh, yeah. And we've got all sorts of different names that aren't names that are just like concubine, you know, and um, harlot and all these other things. Uh, I, I just wish they would say this woman, this wife, this daughter, this sister, this friend. But it's no one can really refer to women as a, a real person. Instead, it's just a counterpart and even lesser than a counterpart to the man it seems.
2: You know something I was thinking of earlier? And it kind of fits into this point that Jason just brought up. Why is it that we call women witches and we, we literally we evil ties that whole segment. Like, you're a witch, you're a woman. You're a witch, you're a woman, you're evil. And we know the history uh, when you know, witches have been burned at the stakes and all those other kind of things. But yet, men who do the same thing, they're glorified as magicians or warlocks. Wizards. Wizards, yeah.
1: A penis will do a lot for you in society. I am learning.
2: I think it's horrible. I I thought about the the lives of women who we, we vilified and just destroyed and killed and murdered and maimed for doing the same thing that their counterparts were doing that their male counterparts were doing. And they got off scotch-free for the most part. They were glorified. Stories are written about them. Merlin the magician and, and and wizards and all that kind of stuff. There's movies and things. And I think that's just terrible.
1: Well, you know, as scary as, scary as the, the witches were back in the day, their daughters now are fucking crazy. <laughs> like... There's a whole generation coming up right now of legitimate witches that hold like physical power. And th- they're not here to sit down and shut up like normal. Like they're this whole new generation that's coming up is just so divine and powerful and beautiful. The moms didn't die in vain. <laughs>
2: good. Good. That's good to hear. It's
0: pretty incredible that we do seem to be living through a moment of the empowerment of women as a as a whole people group. I, I mean, love it's it. It's really, really exciting to me. It is. Very exciting. I, I got, we we live in Florida and we get the opportunity to vote two weeks before election day. You can go to early voting. And so my wife and I got to go yesterday and cast our votes in a primary for Florida's first woman governor. And nice. it's almost to the point now that I'm just like, oh yeah, let's just uh, I'm I'm just going to vote for all the women.
1: Nice. <laughs> as you said
0: nice Kyle in our last episode. The only people who haven't had to go to the Supreme Court and beg for their rights at some point mm-hmm. were white men. Yeah. And white men have run the show for so long. Yeah. And look at the mess that we've made. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I, it's almost a confession for me. Brandy and I were talking about this uh, here in our office the other day, how, you know, I found Hillary Clinton very unlikable. Mm-hmm. Because she was, uh, just, just her style of speaking and her laughter and, and things of that nature. But it's such a double standard because like you were just saying, Kyle, if you take that personality and the things I didn't like about her and put them on a white man, I probably would have voted for him.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: It is such a double standard. And, and we will take that, that ambition and that, drive and that charisma and put it on a man and call it anointing in the church. But when it's on a woman, we'll call her Jezebel.
2: Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Jezebel has been vilified. She's evil. We label people we label we've been labeling women in that that name in the church for years. A woman comes to church, has a voice, has any kind of a voice, says or does anything that's not in the norm. And especially in the black church, this happens a lot. Oh, you're Jezebel. You're Jezebel. Instantly. Instantly. It's, it's horrible. You said in the it's black disgusting. church? Yeah, definitely in the black church. I
1: you know, thought that women we... were kind of revered in the black church. I, I think I'm wrong. <laughs> Sorry.
0: Oh, you're yeah, You're wrong.
1: I You're just wrong. thought, like... Please,
0: Lola, tell <laughs> Kyle how it is in the black church. <laughs> I got
1: a, I got a blast. <laughs> Fucking get me off. <laughs> so, um, I just kind of thought, from, like, my interpretation of it, like, I've seen a lot of black women in, like, leadership positions in some black churches. So I think I was under the uh, impression that they held some kind of, like... Uh, I guess, a greater power or equal power to a black man?
2: You want to know why?
1: Why? <laughs> I'll
2: tell you why. Okay. In the black church, it's, it's, it's commonly known. That the, the reason why, and this is a very sad thing I'm about to say, it's, it's disgusting. It's, it's commonly known that the reason why there's so many women in power in the black church is because there's just not enough black men to fill those roles.
1: Is that a bad thing, though?
2: I think from the perspective of saying this is the only reason why.
1: Oh no, yeah, that's where
2: yeah. If there were if there were enough men here, if men were present, if men would stand up and and be in church as because in the black church especially, women far out outnumber the men, far outnumber the men. So, like in the church I grew up in, um, in in the ministry staff, the young staff that I was in when I when I. came into that staff, there was two male representatives and 10 women representatives in the ministry staff. Now, I suspect that number would have been far less had there been more men in the church. But the women in our church outnumber the men maybe 10 to one, maybe 15 to one. So, again, you know, I think that the picture that we get from the Bible and how women are treated, subjected to all types of in, in, cruel acts and, and inhumane acts, the story you just mentioned, Lola, we, we, we read these stories, it, it just continues to perpetuate this ideology and this, this viciousness and this nastiness that women are inferior, and it's just terrible.
1: And that we don't have control over our bodies. I mean, we're still dealing with that. <laughs> I was going to ask you about money in the black church. <laughs> I don't know if that's relevant or if it's different in that circle, but were you guys wealthy? Did you uh, go to or did you attend like congregations that were just like super wealthy? Like, was money a big deal for you guys? Just to kind of switch gears a little bit. Well,
2: most of the the churches that I'm familiar with were in the inner cities, so they weren't really successful in, in the sense of big churches. I mean, there were a few, but you know, out of the mega churches in America, per se, you know, there might be a handful of mega churches that are black versus the mega churches that are other nationalities. So. Money in the black church, especially now when you break it down to different denominations, especially Baptists, we, we love to pick on the Baptists because they were notorious about this. The Baptist church was all about money. You know, they would, they would literally raise three to four offerings every service. There was a building fund. There was a missionary fund. There was a pastor's fund. There was a general offering. <laughs> so you go to a Baptist church and it's very easy to see several orphans being collected in the same time also in the black church there's a very strong emphasis on take care of the man or the woman of god a very strong emphasis on that very very heavy very very strong whereas there would be a church i know many churches like this with a handful of members and i literally mean handful of members and the pastor was they would they would literally pay for the pastor's mortgage they would they they buy him a car i mean they would break their backs with not only their own giving but constantly putting on programs and bake sales and chicken sales and all types of things to continually support the pastor so that he or she can be full time in the ministry of a people of a church of about 30 people so um i've seen tremendous abuses in that regard I've seen uh, tremendous deceit in that regard. And I'm not going to say it happens in every black church, but I, I know that it happens in a majority of black churches. Now, if I switch gears and I say, but in actuality it's really no different than what Kenneth Copeland does or Jesse Duplantis or Joyce Meyer or Paula White or anything any of the others, you know, they amass these huge mailing lists and they just hook and bait and hook people to keep becoming partners and give, 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 give so they can live in their fancy homes and buy their big jets. Kenneth Copeland is worth $750 million. $750 million. $750 million. It's a lot of money.
1: That's really weird to me, like making money and making a career out of preaching. I'm telling this to <laughs> two former preachers, but like, was that ever weird for you guys?
0: Yeah, I struggle with that one a lot. Kyle, I heard a story recently about a pastor who was robbed at gunpoint
2: Oh yeah,
0: <laughs> during the church service. I believe it's up near you, probably in New York somewhere. Yeah, New
2: York, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And the pastor and his wife were robbed. Yeah. And the thief got out with like $900,000 in jewelry. What the hell kind of church was that, Kyle? <laughs> I mean, first of all, who carries $900,000 worth of jewelry around a church? Yeah. But what kind of pastor? Well, has nine hundred thousand
2: dollars worth of jewelry. I can tell you this much: when I heard the story, I did a little research. It wasn't it wasn't a church of Bishop Jake's size for sure. So it wasn't some mega church with thousands of members. That when the when the camera panned the audience, it was fairly empty compared to the size. Again. And again, I don't know if this happens in every church, but I I did attend a white church for a portion of my life when I lived in Virginia. I didn't see the strong emphasis on money as I did growing up in the black church and some of my experiences there. So I I don't want to paint the black church to be some, you know, uh, a den of these necessarily, because I know this stuff happens in every church and there's Charlatans all around. But there is the emphasis. My my problem is, and, and I didn't do this because when I saw it, I realized early on I did not want to get rich on the backs of my people. We never grew enough to where the church can quote take care of me, provide a salary for me, things of that nature. So I was never going to put pressure on the people because I knew they were struggling. I knew they were already having a hard time making on their own. Now, yes, we did receive it often because we had bills to pay, we had lights, you know, more, we had our rent to pay and you basic needs. But uh, I had made up my mind, I was never going to try to get rich on the backs of the people. I was never going to put them in a position where they had to take care of me at their expense. So that's just how we did things in my church. But I'd seen a lot of that kind of stuff going on. So that church, that pastor got robbed. He didn't have a big church. But again, he, he, he's very crafty at convincing people that he's the man of God. They use that story of Samuel and not Samuel, of Elijah, go make a bread for me first and bring it to me first and then go make one for you and your son. They use that ideology a lot. You take care of the man and woman of God first.
0: Right, for many, for many churches, and this is not just black churches, but white churches, and I'm sure a lot of Hispanic churches as well, uh, multicultural churches that have this mindset that the pastor who is well-provided for is like, we take care of our pastor, therefore God takes care of us. Right. It's, it's like a point of pride it to is. the congregation. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was a struggle. Lola, you were asking about our experiences. Um,
1: and you don't have to go into that if you don't feel comfortable. I, no, no, no. I, I
0: generally served really small churches that... Did not could not hardly afford to pay me much uh, at all, if anything. The one big exception to that, I was not the senior pastor. I was on staff as a staff pastor, but I, I had other responsibilities other than being the senior pastor. But it was a well-established church, almost a hundred years old, that had a, a good budget and a good staff and a you know multi-million-dollar building and all of that. But I'll tell you when I really started to feel bad, I was not extremely well paid there, but I, was, I, re- I received a better salary at that church than I ever had anywhere else. Um, but when I really started to feel bad was once a year, the finance team of the church would ask certain people to share one per Sunday for a month of how tithing to the church had attracted God's blessing to their lives. And so they would get up and they would talk about how God had blessed them financially because of their commitment to supporting that church, which in turn paid my salary. There, That felt so incredibly manipulative to me. I didn't believe that tithing was a command for Christians. I always believed that tithing was an Old Testament concept and that it never applied to Christians. And I thought that it was getting used in the American church as a way of manipulating money out of people to support these machines that we were calling churches. And so I already had a bad attitude about that. But to to see week after week, all month long, people getting up and telling these stories of, look how I earned the blessing of God by giving money to, you know, the preacher or the church or the ministry. Um, It it made me sick. And it wasn't very long after that, that I just couldn't do it anymore.
1: Look at how I earned love and proved myself as a worthy human by giving my hard-earned money to a God who can't even spend it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, my grandparents, um, they were really, my grandparents on my mom's side were very poor. My grandpa was a farmer, retired bus driver for the school system. And they barely scraped by. But they had their shows on TBN that they would not miss. And they were sending month uh, money month after month to these preachers on television who had air-conditioned dog houses and gold-plated toilets in their homes, um, who some of whom later turned out to be crooks who had done all kinds of immoral and illegal things with that money. But I saw how they were being exploited, how their faith was being exploited, and it drove me crazy. So all of that brings us to the question for this episode, does God need our money in the first place? I mean, is there any legitimate reason that people of faith should feel compelled or as if they are doing God or the universe or their spiritual lives a favor by investing in these ministries or churches? What do y'all think?
1: What was the point of tithing when it first came about? Do you know? Because I don't know. I never understood what the point of tithing was because they didn't have per se, like church buildings and like a mortgage and things like that.
0: Right. Originally, tithing was to provide for the priesthood and the temple in temple Ju- Judaism. And also, you could not give money. It was forbidden. You gave a tenth of your livestock, a tenth of your land, your seed, the produce of the land, things of the, of that nature, you would bring that to the temple to help provide for the priesthood. That was the system that they lived under, under that old covenant law, the 613. We call them the Ten Commandments. There were 613 of them. And that's, what, that's how tithing was implemented.
2: Kyle, do you have any more insight on that? Yeah, that, that's basically how it was implemented, how it started. There's also a story in Exodus where supposedly Moses um, hears from God and says, okay, I need you to, I want you to build me a tabernacle here in the wilderness so the people can have a place of worship, da, 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 da. And Moses comes down off of the mountain and says, hey, you know, God said that, you know, he, he wants us to build a tabernacle out here. Uh, what do you have to offer? And supposedly as the story goes, people started bringing their gold and their silver. I mean, they were just so happy to give it all over to God. And a lot of preachers use that story to suggest that the gold and the silver and the goods that the Egyptians gave the Israelites to get out of Egypt, they gave that all back to God. So the, the implication is God blesses you with all this stuff and you give it back to God. So that was another reason how all of this giving to the church kind of formated itself into modern modern way of thinking and believing A lot of people go to that story as well. But um, should we give to a God? I mean, the the, the ideal by itself is ludicrous. It's crazy. It it makes no sense whatsoever. And and I'm on record for being a lot more critical of the whole institution now that I'm out of it and I can look back on it more objectively. You know, it's funny because we're taught to pray to God for provisions. So if, if you're in a church and you're struggling, you're having a hard time financially, you go to the, the leadership of the church, and most of the time, the, the, what they're going to tell you to do is, well, we're going to believe God with you for finances or, you know, provisions. We're going we're to we're pray and believe God for you. And they're going to say a prayer, and then, you know, you're going to walk away not getting anything, and I can give you any money that I can help you, really, in most cases. But they're going to pray. So my question is, why in the hell are we praying to a God for provisions And this God won't even pay for his own stuff. God doesn't pay for his church buildings. God doesn't pay for the electricity in the church. God doesn't pay for mission calls and private jets and, and missionary work. God doesn't pay for that. God doesn't provide, hey, go over here, pastor. Look under this rock and you'll find all the money you need to build that church. Hey, pastor, you need to get to Africa this month. Go over here, look behind this tree, dig up this hole, dig here, and you'll find money to get to Africa to Africa or whatever. That doesn't happen. So we're we're convinced to, 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 you know, we should pray to a God for provisions, but yet the same God doesn't take care of its own stuff. So it's all backwards. It's all crazy. It's all ludicrous. It's all just wacky. And I don't think we're thinking about it enough. So I don't think we should be giving money to a God in any way, shape, or form. I think if anything, churches should pull God out of the whole giving equation the promise of seed time and harvest, the promise of a blessing of a tie, the promise of God loves the cheerful giver, all of that stuff that is repeated Sunday after Sunday after Sunday in church after church after church to get people to give, all of that stuff should be snatched away, should never be used. God should never be tied to what you should give so God can bless. None of that should happen. We should literally just be telling people, Hey, this is what our mortgage is or our rent. This is what our staff is, da 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 How would you like to help us contribute? If this ministry is helping you, if you want to keep these doors open, this is what we need, da-da-da-da. And we need to rip away all connotation that a God is going to return to you or bless you or help you if you give or that a God is happy with you because you're giving to this church's ministry or you're helping to spread the gospel. Just to spread the gospel, it doesn't, it doesn't cost anything. If we're really being honest about what spreading the gospel really is. doesn't cost anything. And it costs nothing to do that. So I just think the whole thing is just a sham. It's tragic because so many people are being abused in this area, chasing your grandparents the story, you told. I have horror stories about giving things I've done, the foolish things I've given away, believing that I was going to be blessed in return. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. Sorry for the long tangent thing, but...
1: No, you're good, Kyle. Please, always do that.
2: <laughs> yeah, always. Um, but it,
0: it's so heartbreaking, though, especially when we convince people that God needs to test their faith. Yeah. That this gift is the seed that you're putting in the ground that's going to bring a harvest of prosperity, that God just needs to know that your faith is in Him. and That is so manipulative. It's vicious and it takes advantage of so many people. It just, it infuriates me. I mean, if there is a God, especially one that we say is all knowing, then God does not wonder how much faith you have.
2: Thank you. Bingo. Should already know.
0: And there's nothing to do to prove how much faith you have.
1: Yep. You guys kind of had a different experience with tithing which I didn't really think was possible. Um, but the whole like... <laughs> you guys were taught like you give in order to like receive those heavenly blessings. I was never told that at all. What I understood tithing to be was you tithe so that we are able to um, reach more people with the message, which I mean, I guess is almost the same but i specifically remember this one time at i'm sorry i'm going to name drop Decatur Highway Church of Christ Gardendale Alabama they put up on some screen like their i guess budget for the year or something and they had like a pie chart and showed where all of the money was going and i was under the impression a lot really the majority of our money was going to either our missionaries or our like youth group um, activities, stuff for the teens to do, or like uh, the food pantry for the community, things of that nature. Just like more like communal type things um, that was useful for all people. But I, I shit you not, literally seventy five percent of the money was going to paying. Salaries and the utilities for the building, maybe the mortgage. I mean, the church building has been there for as long as I've been alive, a little bit longer. So I was under the impression that we were furthering like the ministry and reaching more people and offering either services to them and like help for them, like older people that needed certain things done around their house. Like we were contributing to those types of things, but no, um, it was all going to salaries and utilities and stuff like things that don't further the message. So that was, that was when I immediately stopped tithing because I was like, this is not, I'm just going to directly give to these people that I think really need it. Like teachers that need stuff for their classrooms and, Uh, stuff like that, families in the community that are struggling. So I never thought I'd receive a heavenly blessing necessarily, but I did think it would serve the community more if I tithed and I was wrong.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's what's so attractive to me um, about house church. Because in the house church model, shout out to Keith Giles for Bringing this to the deconstruction, folks.
1: Keith Giles, the real OG.
0: The, the real OG. The real
2: OG. That's right.
0: So, and under the house church model, you know, we, the three of us, our families, our friends, we can get together in a living room. Mm-hmm. We can talk about whatever's happening spiritually in our lives, or whatever's happening, you know, that we're struggling with, or that, or the successes that we're de- that we're experiencing. We can talk about the good, the bad. We can talk about our friends who need help. We can, you know, pray, meditate, have a yoga class, whatever it is that we do to feel uh, more in tune with ourselves and the universe or God. And and then if we did any kind of an offering like that, it would be something specific. I mean, all right. Yeah. If I give money to a church, I'm going to pay that church's, uh, you know, help pay that church's overhead, which is that massive building and all the utilities, the salaries for the staff members, and then maybe 10 to 20% for missions or programs or things that actually impact the people of that community or beyond. From a house church, you don't have any of that overhead. right? And so we could sit down and say, hey, you know what, this person that I know, they're about to lose their house Because he had to have surgery, he he was in a car wreck, and he hasn't been able to work. So what if this week's offering or this month's or whatever we did, went to help save their house? Yeah, exactly. That's real world results that make a, a tangible difference in somebody's life. What if Lola comes in and she knows somebody that's suffering from cancer and, and they need food or they're about to lose their health insurance because they can't afford their premiums? And we say, all right, we're all going to pitch in and we're going to help make that happen. That is so much of a better model in my mind yeah. than the traditional church model. What do you guys think?
2: Absolutely. There's a, there, when I was in Texas, there was a huge, huge seven-day Adventist church being built. Huge. On the big corner, I mean, massive. Probably upwards of 10 to $12 million, I would assume. Now, that building, when completed, whenever they finished it, was only going to serve the members of, I'm sorry, the Latter-day Saints. It was a Mormon church, not the Seventh-day Adventist. It was only going to serve the people who are connected to that ministry To that type of church we're going to serve the community Because if you, if you weren't a Mormon You weren't going So, so that t- I, I started thinking 10 to 12 billion dollars billion I think is probably costing to be built Like Jason's saying What if they took that money Went out into the community Started knocking on doors how can I be of service to you? Do you know how many families they would encounter who perhaps cars are broken down and can't get to work and they don't know how they're going to make it back and forth to work and take the kids to school or whatever, or how many people are probably cupboards are barely empty or about to lose their home or in some dire financial strength because of a medical situation, I mean, they would run into countless of real life issues. And if they were able to give the people what they needed out of that 10 to 12 million dollars to buy that new car or to buy their groceries for the next year or to pay that medical expense or to help save their home, how much more of an impact Would that church have now been to the community? Do you know those people would never forget that? They would never forget that. It may actually bring people, quote, to God. It may actually get people to go to church. It may actually get people to be converted. It would change their lives. And none of that is coming. From the ten to twelve million million dollars that church spent to build that big, massive, gaudy building, none of that.
0: Absolutely, feels like somewhere along the way we lost our way. We forgot hey. in church what it's really about, yeah. And people became a means to an end instead of why we're here. Uh, but even it, you know, Lola, you mentioned that uh, in the church setting you were brought up in, uh, you weren't promised a bunch of spiritual rewards, which I think is great. They kind of followed more of the model that Kyle just suggested that we use, which is say, this is what it costs for this church to exist. Would you want to help us? It sounds like they did add some of the help us get the message out there, totally overlooking the fact that the message is bullshit.
1: It was very much bring more people to church so we can get some more money so we can yeah. keep this nice big building.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it's exploitation. It's manipulation. And uh, I think the world would be better off without it. I, 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 I try now, you know, I, I still love to go to a church service every once in a while. I haven't been since COVID started, but uh, there are things about uh, church services that feel comforting to me just because I've been in it. So uh, my whole life. Um, and especially if I'm not leading it. <laughs> It's It can be comforting to me. Um, there's a little church, a little um, United Church of Christ, very progressive. The pastor is um, a member of the LGBT plus community. She and her wife um, lead the church. The wife's the worship leader. And, and, and they're just, they're wonderful people. I love this sweet little church. There's a, a woman who has lost both of her legs, I believe, in a car accident, who holds the communion elements, she'll sit in her wheelchair and hold them and offer them to anybody who wants to come and take communion at the end of the service. And it's just so beautiful and comforting to me.
1: That does sound really sweet.
0: (laughs) Yeah, a, a little... Small expression of faith like that that is meant to encourage. There's never anything exploitive. I've never heard any kind of a manipulative, um, you know, you're robbing God if you don't give 10% to this church kind of thing. <laughs> never heard that yeah, there.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, so I can, I can go along with some of that, but I cannot find in my heart anywhere any justification for the mega church to exist. Yeah. I just can't. Millions and millions and millions of dollars wasted on building salaries. I mean, just the insurance costs yeah. of some of the monstrosities that we've built Yeah, would end hunger in a small town.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's nothing but a, a, a it's, it's nothing more than a, than a building to ego. Nothing. I remember, and I'll tell on myself here, now again, we never reached any type of real success as far as numbers, growth, or anything like that. We were in it for a long time. We kept waiting for God to increase us whatever. But when I got into the word of faith and then later got into grace, the grace message a little bit more and a lot more belief in the message of seed, time, and harvest. Now, I was never a manipulative preacher, meaning I didn't preach the message of seed time and harvest and then would collect an offering afterwards. I mean, you'd you'd be amazed what happens in some of these services. A pastor will get up and preach from Psalm 69 and then demand a $69 offering from everybody in the building. They Very crafty, very, very crafty, very, very crafty. But anyway, once I got into the grace camp and then a You know, word of faith and grace and seed, time, and harvest. I believed in seed, time, and harvest because I believed that a God would back its word because that's the progression. You believe the word of faith teaches you to believe in God's word. Stand on the word, believe the word, confess the word, trust the word. God is behind the word. It's going to work because you put your faith in it. That's the word of faith movement in a nutshell. So you take your dependency out of you. You put it completely and totally into God's hand God's word. God will back his word. My words will never turn to me void, da-da-da-da-da. So in that concept, seed time and harvest, I gravitated towards it because, okay, this is God's way. Again, we, we, you know, it's the whole kingdom way. What's the kingdom way? How does God do it? Da-da-da. So I, I have to admit, though, that in that word of faith, grace, seed time and harvest time that I was in, I live in a, in a city. We don't have many big churches and definitely nothing on the scale to which I thought God was calling me to. And I remember thinking, God, we're going to build you a mega church in this city. And it's going to be a testament to what faith can do. I remember having that ambition and that desire in my heart. That's where we were going with this whole thing. We're going to build a a huge building. It's going to be built on faith So that every time people see it, they will say, this is what faith has done. Well, years later, now that I'm no longer in it, as I look back on all that, here's my moment of truth. It really would have been nothing but a statue to my ego. That was really behind that heart thought that I had back then. Feed my ego. Because my faith would have built this place. My name would have built this place. My preaching would have built this place and it would have been a legacy to me.
0: And that's not just true for the preachers, right? Because when we all talk about, even in the congregation about bringing more people into the church, it's really about saying, we're right. We have the biggest church in town. We're the first Baptist church. If, if, if ego was not an issue, we wouldn't care who the first Baptist church was in the town. We wouldn't care who the first Methodist church was. But, we want the biggest church. We want more people to come and be a part of what we're a part of. And so bringing people in, it was always about the ego. Yeah, Ego has done so much damage in the name of God. Yep. And I've certainly been a part of that in my life. Any closing thoughts, Lola?
1: <laughs> Circle back to me. Um, closing thoughts. I'm just so happy to not be a part of church anymore. <laughs> And that sounds really jaded of me, but I, I'm just happy that I get to tithe the way that I feel is most honorable and private. I feel like, like I, right now, especially with school starting back, I really, really love just like sending an anonymous donation to a classroom. Cause I know that really helps, you know, our school system, like education is so important. I hold that with such high regard now. And, you know, I'm, I'm just really happy that I get to like, just put in, put in a little bit of support, like do what I can. And I'm just really happy that I have the freedom to tithe in the way that I feel is um, most loving, really, at the end of the day, um, and most impactful. Um, to the people in my community. So um, t- tie in the way that makes you happy.
0: <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Kyle, how about you? A closing thought?
2: Yeah, just listen. For those of you out there that are, that are wondering, if you want to give to a church, a ministry, I mean, by all means, do that if it's sincere. If any of it's pressure, if any of it's obligation, if any of it is because you think, that a God is going to return to you what you give. If you're in any kind of desperate financial situation and you think that if you make this sacrificial offering, God's going to help you, then I will, I will stand in front of you and say, don't do it. Don't do it. It's not going to happen. So if you are going to do it and you want to just do it sincerely because it's in your heart and you like doing it and it doesn't cost you anything, it's, 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 you're going to give nothing that you can, you know, that you can afford to lose, then by all means do that. But if you need it, if it's gonna hurt you, your first obligation is to you and your family, not to a God, not to a church.
0: Amen. And as somebody who still believes in a God and somebody who still considers himself Christian, if you're if you're listening and you've been manipulated like that, uh, I just wanna say out loud, maybe this first time you've heard it, it's okay to take care of your family first. It's okay to pay your bills before you write your tithe check. It's okay to help your kids and people you love. It's okay to buy groceries for that neighbor who lost their job instead of writing that check to the church. So uh, I love what's been presented in this episode by these two co-hosts. Do it from your heart. The kingdom of God flows through relationships. If you know somebody with a need and you have the means to do something about that need, awesome. If you don't, then that's okay too. And so just open your heart to the world around you and do what you can, but don't feel guilty about anything that you can't. Uh, it's been a lot of fun hanging out with Kyle and Lola again. And friends, we love having you with us for each episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. We'll be back again in two weeks. We've got some exciting announcements about the podcast coming over the next few weeks. Um, and also, there'll be a book that I'll be talking to you about here uh, in the next episode or two. So please... um, Find us on social media. You'll see links to each of the hosts' social media in the show notes. Uh, You can also find a link to our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash Messy Spirituality Media. We are still sitting at a whopping zero patrons. And so I want to say this, since we've been talking about giving in this episode, you do not have to give us anything. We're going to continue to do the best podcast that we can whether you give or not. But if you want to help us do it, we do have some expenses. We've got hosting fees. We have the best sound engineer in the world, the podcast doctor himself, Eric Howell, who does not work cheap. Actually, he does. That's why we can afford him. But we do um, have some expenses to keep the podcast going. and so, But we're willing to do stuff for you in exchange for your support. And so each of the hosts has committed to do a video once a month specifically for our patrons. And also just to try to jumpstart our patronage a little bit. I was a part of a book launch last year, a book called Before You Lose Your Mind Deconstructing Bad Theology in the Church. It was compiled and edited by Keith Giles, who also wrote a couple of chapters. It's got chapters from me. Brandon Andrus, Michelle Collins, Derek Day, Matt DeStefano, Brandon Dragan, Maria Francesca French, Mark Karras, Matthew Cortman, Josh Doctor Reverend Dr. Katie Valentine, and Skeeter Wilson. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I've got 10 copies of this book sitting in a box in my closet. And so for the first 10 people who sign up to become patrons of any amount for the podcast, Uh, on our Patreon page. I'm going to send you a paperback copy of this book just as a thank you. And again, you'll get some exclusive online content as well. Thank you all so much for listening. Thanks for being a part of this family. I hope to see you over on the Messy Conversations group on Facebook, where this conversation continues. Thanks for listening.
2: Thank you, Bye. Bye.
1: Love you, guys. Bye.